I have uh, been, those of you that know, know me know I've been passionate about the gospel, especially the clarity and accuracy and urgency of the gospel for almost 35 years now. I first uh, was introduced to the gospel as a young boy. My parents were Christians. I was raised in a uh, Bible teaching church, and I remember very distinctly on a Sunday night feeling the convicting work of the Holy Spirit in my life as the pastor of that Sunday evening service gave a, a very passionate uh, call to salvation, explained that Jesus Christ had died for my sins and risen from the dead, and that it was only through faith alone and Christ alone that I could be forgiven of my sin and have the gift of eternal life. And uh, so I, it was a Baptist church, and so they uh, routinely gave altar calls, but I didn't go forward, so to speak, at, at that moment, even though the Lord was working on my heart. But later that night, as my dad came around uh, to say bedtime prayers, uh, one of my parents each night would come to each of my sisters and I's bedroom and just tuck us in and say, say our bedtime prayers. And so I remember distinctly asking my dad about, I don't remember the words that I used, but essentially asking him about the gospel and, and heaven and hell and, and my need for a savior. And he uh, re-articulated again the, the, the sincere gospel message that anyone who trusts in Jesus Christ and him alone for salvation can have eternal life. And in that moment, I trusted Christ. And then it was some time later, not long, maybe the next service or next couple of services that I made a public profession, let people know, hey, I've trusted Christ. And then was baptized as a young six-year-old boy. But I've also been passionate later on in my journey. The Lord really began to burden me after I got out of college about the need for clarity in the gospel and the fact that in this present church age, the devil is blinding men's hearts to the gospel, according to 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. And uh, consequently, a lot of churches today are not preaching a clear gospel. Uh, many reasons for that. In some cases, it's just outright heresy. In other cases, it's just lack of clarity. Maybe they're using colloquialisms or words that simply aren't biblical and uh, you know, mean well. They, they love the Lord and they love His Word, but they're not always clear on the gospel. And so for almost 35 years now of ministry, uh, I've been passionate about this. And I bring that up to say that uh, in, at various stages and in various ways throughout our journey, uh, my family and I have have suffered for the gospel. I remember in one case, uh, one of the church leaders uh, told me, "I care too, JB. You care too much about the gospel, and uh, things like that." And um, but as I look back through my journey, and then I I read the passage in Acts that we're reading today, and really the whole history of the early church in the Book of Acts, I really feel convicted that I have not suffered even in the slightest for the gospel, the way brothers and sisters in Christ throughout church history have suffered. Not even close. <laughs> uh, what I've experienced is a cakewalk, honestly. And so I just, as I was thinking about this passage, as we're in Acts uh, chapter 14 uh, this, <clears throat> this morning, I just uh, really felt burdened uh, for two reasons. One, because for 2,000 years the church has been under attack and there are believers who have paid the ultimate price. In fact, um, there are, according to Voice of the Martyrs, there are more martyrs for the cause of Christ today, in 2022, than there ever have been at any single time in church history. Uh, so I just really feel burdened uh, to think about that and, and to pray for them, but also uh, because I really believe that if the Lord tarries is coming, we here in America may also face suffering the likes of which we've not seen before. So what I'd like to do this morning is, as we have been, kind of walk through verse by verse some of the uh, text here from Acts uh, chapter 14 uh, and make some applications. And remember, this is historical narrative. We're not dealing with doctrinal uh, portions of Scripture like the epistles that directly say this is what you do. It's more... Uh, you know, descriptive, not prescriptive, but nevertheless, the whole counsel of God is inspired, and we can, uh, and it's profitable, according to Paul in 2 Timothy 3, 16, so we can learn from it and make some application and some principles from it. So I'll do that first, and then I want to close out this morning by actually calling us to prayer and hopefully uh, planting some seeds in your own heart that, uh, of some things that we can pray for, that you can pray for uh, in the coming week uh, for the persecuted 
uh, church. So let's put this in context historically. So we're dealing with the time frame of 48 to 49 A.D. I showed this map last week, I believe, as we began. Uh, actually, it was two weeks ago. Last week we, we had a Lord's Supper service. Uh, but last time we were in Acts, I showed this chart uh, as we began Paul and Barnabas's missionary journey. So you can see over on the right of the screen, their, their journey begins in Syria in a city called Antioch. And uh, I don't know if you can see this red dot here. I'm trying something new here today. But uh, it goes, uh, they left, uh, you know, were sent out by the church. They prayed over them. They sent them out. And then Paul and Barnabas went to Cyprus, landed on the eastern coast there at Salamis. And this Cyprus was Barnabas's home territory. And they spent some time there. They eventually made it all the way over to Paphos, the kind of the capital city there, shared the gospel, had a number of things happen there. And then they uh, went uh, north up to so the region of southern Galatia and began to evangelize uh, cities like uh, Perga, uh, Iconium, Lystra, Derby, uh, another Antioch, not the same Antioch. You see that up here in the top of your screen. That's a, a Pisidian Antioch, not Syrian Antioch. Uh, and anyway, when they got to Perga, that's when John Mark, if you recall, left, uh, abandoned the group. Uh, we don't know why. We can speculate, but uh, it didn't please Paul, as we find out later. Uh, but anyway, he went back to uh, uh, Jerusalem. And uh, so this is kind of the journey. And, you know, we're dealing here with about a year and a half or so of time. And uh, they're going from city to city and experiencing certain Things. But what we're going to find out uh, today is that the persecution begins uh, to intensify. And as I mentioned uh, during the announcement period earlier, you know, we saw persecution almost right out of the bat. Remember, Peter and John were imprisoned. But this is different. This is persecution uh, that kind of begins to reach a whole new uh, level. So with that backdrop, let's pick it up at the end of chapter 13. We're in chapter 14 today, but for context, I want to Pick it up in verse 49. The word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. And we've talked about how these apostles had something to say. Okay, they weren't going there to dig wells or to build houses or all of that. They might have done some of that too. But their primary calling was to share the gospel. And Paul would later say in Romans, which he wrote on his third missionary journey, that, you know, how can they hear without a preacher? How can they believe unless they hear? And so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So they had something to say. You know, the gospel is words. It's a truth articulated, which when believed brings eternal life. And then he goes on, Luke the narrator here goes on, but the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and chief men of the city, raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their uh, region. So the unbelieving Jews that hadn't believed the gospel, they obviously had, a, had contacts in high places. Remember, Judaism and Rome, Romanism were in cahoots. So the religious uh, aspects of Judaism that had not trusted in Christ, that system was still kind of under the auspices of Rome and they were working hand in glove. And so these unbelieving Jews evidently had some contacts in high places, and they used those to stir up this uh, persecution. Uh, but then we read that Paul and Barnabas shook off the dust from their feet against them and came to Iconium. So remember, that's heading north there, up in the region of southern Galatia. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Shaking the dust off of one's feet was a cultural thing in Judaism that sort of indicated their separation that okay we're done with you you know we don't have anything to do with you the Lord Jesus had actually told the disciples in Matthew 10 when he sent them out that if anyone doesn't receive you or hear your words then shake off the dust from your feet and uh, move on uh, so it was kind of a cultural thing that they did then we come to chapter 14 and it's Luke tells us it happened while they were in Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews and spoke, so spoke that a great multitude of both Jews and of Greeks believed. Uh, so they followed, when they got to Iconium, they followed the same pattern that they'd always followed. They went to the synagogue and they began to evangelize. They began to share the gospel. And we read some of Paul's 
sermons. We read them earlier in chapter 13, basically saying to the Jews, anyway, this Jesus whom you crucified is the Lord. You need to trust in him. He died for your sins. He's the only hope of salvation. And uh, for the Gentiles, again, same thing without the Jewish background. But many Gentiles, by the way, living in that day, understood the principles of Judaism, understood God and so forth, and the Messiah and the Messianic hope, even if they hadn't converted to Judaism. They were enmeshed in that type of culture and dialogue. And so the gospel message was largely the same, no matter who uh, they were talking to. And they experienced uh, great results, many conversions, um, um, even though some also rejected it. And then you read on to verse 3, they, therefore they stayed there a long time. Because God was, the ministry was being fruitful and God was bringing many people to faith as the Spirit convicted them, they stayed a long time. It says in verse 3, therefore they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of His grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Um, a couple of observations here. First of all, they testified boldly. Um, I remember preaching a message one time at a conference on, you know, boldly preach the gospel. I think we've kind of lost sight of that. Uh, we tend to be sheepish when it comes to the gospel. And for that reason, uh, coming up in September on Wednesday nights here, we're going to do an eight-week series uh, on how to share the gospel and we're going to bring in a, a dear friend of mine and, and ministry that I'm acquainted with that has done some excellent job just helping you casually, with confidence, talk about the Lord Jesus in everyday life. Not some big formulaic plan where you got to study the workbook and come up with it. It's just basically, if you had 30 seconds with someone on an elevator and you had an opportunity to talk to them about the Lord, how would you begin that conversation and give you some ideas like that? So... Um, I think one of the reasons that the church today is not bold in sharing the gospel is because we don't talk about the gospel enough. <laughs> you know, a lot of times Christians think the gospel, like I just shared, is something that you believed when you were a child if you were raised in church or you believed way back when, and you sort of put that on the shelf and say, okay, I'm done with that. Now let's talk about spiritual growth. Let's talk about sanctification. Let's talk about the discipleship process. And so it's true that the local assembly is supposed to be a place where believers come and get built up in their faith and equipped so they can go out and share the gospel. But the gospel needs to be declared to both believers and unbelievers, right? In uh, my book, Getting the Gospel Wrong, I share the story of Vince Lombardi, the famous, the, the second greatest football coach of all time, by the way, because we all know who the greatest is. I mean, it's, it's you know, pretty clear, Tom Landry. <laughs> but, uh, but Vince Lombardi, that fam famous Hall of Fame coach, you know, the Super Bowl uh, trophy is named after him. For you Denver Broncos fans, the Super Bowl trophy is what you get when you win a Super Bowl. Um, actually, Broncos have won as many or more, I think, than the Cowboys, and certainly more recently, so it really doesn't really make sense, that joke. But most of my jokes don't make sense. But anyway... Um, so Lombardi, I mean, Hall of Fame players, top of their game, the cream of the crop, and yet he would begin every football season at the first practice <clears throat> by holding up a football and saying, gentlemen, this is a football. <laughs> Why? I mean, they knew what a football was because you've got to understand the basics. You've got to start with the basics. And so um, we need to articulate the gospel clearly and loudly. And so they spoke boldly uh, in the Lord. Uh, notice the signs and wonders. That was very typical in the first century tr apostolic transitional age that uh, as God was unveiling more of His plan of the ages through the written word, the Bible wasn't even complete yet. This was the early days of the church. The way He validated the authenticity of the gospel and that in fact this is a legitimate move of God that Jew and Gentile can be saved by grace through faith in one body. Uh, it was through signs and wonders. In fact, the Old Testament prophets predicted that God would do signs and wonders in uh, their midst. But notice he says they, they were bearing witness to the word of his grace. What is the word of his grace? That's the gospel. That's what the word of grace is. It describes the gospel message perfectly because the grace of God is part and parcel to the gospel. Gospel just means good news. What is the good news? The good news is that you can be saved by grace. Grace is a free gift. If it's not free, it's not grace. If it's not grace, it's not free. You can't work for it. You can't earn it. There's nothing that you can do of, of yourselves to commend yourselves to a holy God. It's a gift. 
And so it's interesting, I think, that Luke um, here describes it as the gospel, as the word of his grace. And so then what we see is in verse 5, a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to abuse and stone Paul and Barnabas. So the Gentiles and the Jewish rulers took the initiative to persecute these men, these gospel proclaimers, Paul and Barnabas. And it's pretty clear that the attempt to stone them was essentially an act of mob violence. This was con you know, different from what happened with Stephen earlier in Acts 7, which was more of a formal attempt uh, to achieve an execution and get permission uh, for an execution. It required a Hebrew court to sanction a legal stoning. But that's not what was happening here. Uh, this, this was a, just a mob action. But what Luke tells us is that they became aware of these rumblings and they fled then further north to the cities of Lystra and Derby and to the surrounding region. And they were preaching the gospel there. So Paul and Barnabas just kept on moving. And uh, the, 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 they, they moved to Lystra and Derby. That became the next kind of focal point for their ministry. They left you know, one political area to, to move into the next. And then I want to pick it up in verse 8, and I'm not going to put these verses on the screen because I really want to call your attention to uh, the, the, the Scriptures in, you know, in your own Bible. By the way, if you don't have a Bible, we've got gift Bibles out here on the table. Feel free to take one home. It's our gift uh, for you. And I encourage you to bring your Bibles. I know these days sometimes our Bible is on our uh, phone. In fact, in full confession, the only time I really use my my physical physical Bible is in the pulpit. Every other time I'm either using it on my computer or my phone just because it's easier. That's where I'm sitting. That's where I'm working. And I can do all of the same things. But old habits die hard. And there's just something about holding the Bible in your hand when you're, when you're reading it. So let's just kind of follow along in verse 8. And I'll make some observations as we go through it. So they're in Lystra. And a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, and then Luke tells us, a cripple from his mother's womb who had never walked. I mean, there's a lot of emphasis there. Luke is really trying to make it clear to us, this guy was, you know, without hope. I mean, this guy, he was no strength, he was sitting, he's from, crippled from his mother's womb, and he had never walked. Verse 9, this man heard Paul speaking, and Paul, observing him intently, and seeing that he had faith to be healed said with a loud voice, stand up straight. Sounds like my mother but when I was a boy. No, stand up straight on your feet. And notice again sort of the emphasis by contrast. Luke says, and he leaped and walked. Now go back to verse 9. When, Luke's, when, when uh, Paul looked at him intently and, and saw that he had faith to be healed, Boy, phrases like that, some people in Christianity really have a field day with and completely miss the point. And they try to suggest that somehow whether or not we, be, we are healed is based upon the, the quality of our faith or the strength of our faith. And if we just had more faith or a certain level of faith, then we'd be healed. I remember uh, a dear friend of mine one time lost a, 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 a daughter and... Um, and uh, she had had Down syndrome, and she was lived to be about 13 or 14, but she passed away. And this uh, other individual who was, I think, a false teacher, uh, misunderstanding this concept, pulled him aside and said, if you and your wife had had enough faith, your daughter would still be alive. I mean, that's tragic. Paul was not observing that this man had a certain quality of faith. This man believed he could be healed, not necessarily that he would be healed. That's the kind of faith we're talking about. This man had faith. He, yeah, I believe God could heal me. Not, not, not that he would, necessarily. He may. God is God. We're not God. Our faith is irrespective of some guaranteed outcome. It's not some magical chant that if you get it right or have enough or if you really, 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 really believe, he'll do it. But if you only really, really believe, he won't. That, that's not it at all. The object of our faith is God. And Paul looked at this man and understood that he had faith in God that he truly believed that God was a God who could heal. And, you know, some people don't believe that. If you don't think God can move mountains or, or heal, then, then, you know, 
he's probably not going to do it, you know. Uh, I, there's a great song on Christian radio now. Uh, I don't even know who sings it, but it's one of my favorite songs. I've got it on my Spotify playlist. That it's, it's Do What You Are Famous For. Anybody heard that song? But it's, you know, it's just a kind of prayer where you just say, God, you're famous for this. Look at what all God's done. He's stopped the waters. He's made it rain. He's divided the Red Sea. He's raised from the dead. He's done so many things. So for God to solve your problems, whatever they may be, is nothing. Do you trust him to do that? And do you trust him, as Job said, even if he doesn't choose to do it? That's faith, right? Like the Hebrew children in Daniel chapter 3. We believe God can deliver us from this fire. That's our faith. But even if he doesn't, God's still God, and we're still not going to bow down and worship that false image. That's the kind of faith that Paul saw in this man. So the man is healed, and now it gets interesting. Notice what happens. Now when the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices, saying in the Lyconian language, quote, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. So again, I think Paul or Luke emphasized the, the predicament of this man with great detail so that we would understand the response of the crowd was commensurate. I mean, this guy had been, they'd seen him every day, kind of like the man at the beautiful gate back in uh, Acts 4 and 5, and they were amazed at what had happened. But they had the right response, but the wrong God, because look what they did. They thought they were gods, you know. And they began to worship Barnabas and Paul. And, you know, as I was studying this, it occurs to me that if Satan cannot derail the gospel through persecution, then he'll often try praise. And many a man and woman of God has gone off the rails, gone off the reservation, because of man-made praise of them. And, you know, that's something that I pray earnestly, and I've seen it, I've seen it so many times. People that I know and have loved and respected that have gotten to a certain place of notoriety, and then people begin to worship them. It becomes a cult of personality. And it's all about them. And that is just another way that Satan tries to derail the gospel. And may it never be with, with uh, Plum Creek Chapel, and may it never be with Not By Works Ministries. Um, so it, Luke tells us, Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, verse 12, because he was the chief speaker. So Zeus was the, the chief god of the Greek pantheon. Hermes was a chief herald. And uh, so remember, this is their first missionary journey, and Barnabas was still kind of running point, if you will. And, and even if they didn't know Barnabas and Paul until they'd shown up in town, they, they could just kind of tell. You know, Barnabas was the leader. Paul was still kind of new at this game. He had gotten saved in 35 AD on the road to Damascus, but he spent 14 years in training, if you will, studying the Word of God, not training under men, but studying the Word of God, rethinking all he had understood about the Jewish Scriptures. And uh, so they thought of Barnabas as the head, and then Paul, since he was the one doing the speaking, and Paul was the primary speaker, they identified him with Hermes, the, uh, the primary herald of Zeus. And then uh, verse 13, Then the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in the front of their city, brought oxen and garlands to the gate, intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. It's not uncommon in pagan religions to adorn the sacrificial animal with garlands of uh, wool or flowers and things like that. And, and that's what they were going to do. They were going to sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas these gods that they uh, so perceived. Verse 14, But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes and ran in among the multitude crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature of, as you. And we preach to you that you should turn from these useless things, indicating they're never going to save you and, and give you eternal life, to the living God who made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all things that are in them, who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness in that 
He did good, gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with good, I mean, with food and gladness. And, and so Paul here is appealing, just, just an interesting side note, he's appealing to God's providence to find common ground with these uh, people. You see that again and again, and we're going to talk about this in our study in September as we talk about how to share the gospel. You know, it begins with common ground, and the first common ground, as Paul alludes to here, is, hey, we're humans just like you. We had a sin problem that needed to be overcome. We were under the penalty of sin too. We all are, and there's only one person who can rightly deal with that sin problem, and that's Jesus Christ, God's Son. Uh, but also he appealed to providence. I mean, this is something that they could all understand. Yeah, where does the rain come from? Where do the changing seasons uh, come from? Where does the uh, you know, fruit that we get on our vines come from? It comes from God, not your idols over here. And then verse 18, with these sayings, they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing to them. Uh, so very, very interesting um, little you know, section there uh, as they were preaching the gospel. But let's pick it up in verse 19. Then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there. Remember those? Those are the ones that were trying to, you know, rise up a mob against them and that's why they fled and uh, having persuaded the multitudes they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city supposing him to be dead so that's very interesting these people actually didn't let it go when Paul and Barnabas left town they went after him Again, it's no comparison because my life's been a cakewalk compared to what the apostles faced. But I can remember for a season, there was an enemy of mine uh, that uh, actually ended up meeting one time. We went to an In-N-Out Burger in San Diego just to try, to try to get him to back off. But he would troll me everywhere I went. And every place I was speaking, every conference or every church, he would email or call the host, the pastor, whoever, and just poison the well against me. Just, you know. This guy doesn't know the Bible. He's terrible. You shouldn't have him in. And then I'd get there and they'd say, hey, what do you know about so-and-so? And I'd go, oh, here we go again. And I, this guy just wouldn't let go. Um, so, but same thing with these people from Antioch, only it was much worse because they came up and, uh, and persuaded them to stone Paul. And actually, uh, I don't think he actually died. Some scholars try to suggest that, but the text, pretty clear, they supposed him to be dead. Um, so we don't know how long it took the hostile Jews from Antioch and Iconium to turn the, the tide of popular sentiment against Paul and Barnabas. But, I mean, think about it. One minute they're worshiping them, calling them gods and wanting to sacrifice to them. The next minute these instigators come up and turn them against them. They convince the fickle residents of Lystra that these uh, men were deceivers and they deserve to die. And... You know, a great man of God who's with the Lord now, but, you know, and I never had the privilege of having him as a professor, but I've read almost everything he's written. He pointed this out as we see the example here. He said, disillusioned fanatics are easily led off into contradictory actions. See, when you're just, you know, emotional and disillusioned and just blindly jumping on a bandwagon, it is very easy to get you to jump on a different bandwagon. But when you're following something based on truth and fact and empirical evidence, it's a lot harder to persuade. So uh, Luke tells us the disciples gathered around him and he rose up and went into the city. <laughs> so he wasn't dead, severely injured. Maybe they thought he was dead, but he wasn't dead. And notice he rose up and went into the city. Paul never did a braver thing than to go straight back into the city which had tried to murder him. I mean, I've never done anything like that. Have you? <laughs> and this is, this is how valuable the gospel is. And this is how important the gospel is. I love what John Wesley reminded us. Always look a mob in the face. And that's exactly what Paul did. So they moved about 60 miles further, coming back down back again towards the coast to Derby, And when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned back through Lystra and Iconium and Antioch. 
So again, you saw from the map, he went back the same route. These are the same people that stoned him and tried to kill him. These are the same people in Iconium that tried to stir up the crowds and ran him out of town there too. And he's going right back uh, through there. And then Luke says, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, saying, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God always refers in Scripture, not always, almost every time. There are a few rare examples where it speaks of the broader rule of God over the universe. But in the New Testament, almost always it refers to that future earthly kingdom. Remember the early Christians believed that Christ was going to come back at any second and establish the kingdom just like he promised he would. On the Mount of Ascension, the men in white raiment promised the disciples, this same Jesus whom you saw go will so come in like manner. Um, so there was an urgency to their evangelistic enterprise. They wanted people to be ready so they could get in the kingdom. They knew the only way to get into the kingdom is by faith alone and Christ alone. And uh, notice he said those that had already been saved, so they wanted to continue in the faith. Not so that they would keep their salvation and otherwise lose it, but because that's the call of the Christian life, is to walk by faith. Later when Paul, after his third missionary journey, or on his third missionary journey, is writing the second letter to the Corinthians, he would remind them to walk by faith and not by sight. And he would remind them to, to the believers to examine themselves and make sure they're walking by faith, 2 Corinthians 13.5. Very commonly misunderstood verse. A lot of people come to 2 Corinthians 13.5 and say, oh, you better check your behavior and make sure you're living a righteous life because if you're not, you're not a Christian. It's not at all what Paul says in the context. He's saying you should walk by faith. Check it out. Are you living by faith right now? Are you having the kind of faith that Paul saw in that man that had been crippled from his mother's womb? Are you trusting God? Or are you living by sight and walking by sight? Examine yourself. And that's what he, as he went back through these churches, that's what he was uh, doing. The method of justification is the same as the method of sanctification, faith. We're saved eternally from the penalty of sin by faith, and we walk by faith as a believer. So faith doesn't just stop, like I said, with believing the gospel and you put it on the shelf and then you try to just you know, work and do good works and try to you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and please God. The very first letter Paul ever writes addresses that issue in the book of Galatians. He says, having been made perfect positionally, we talked about that a couple weeks ago or maybe it was last week, having made, been made perfect positionally by faith, are you now trying to walk by flesh, walk by sight? So they strengthen the souls, they encourage them to keep walking with the Lord, to abide in Christ, uh, as John would later say in his epistle. And then he says this curious thing, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. You think that had some meaning to it, coming from a guy who had just been left for dead outside the city not long before? Of course it did. Christians will absolutely go through Tribulation. We won't go through the tribulation, the 70th week of Daniel, that seven-year period we talked about in the 9 o'clock hour, but we most certainly will face uh, persecution. Um, Paul put it this way in the very last letter that he wrote. So now we're 67 A.D., so 20 years later. He's in jail. He's about to be martyred. And he reminds us under the inspiration of the Spirit that everyone and anyone who desires to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Jesus himself, the very night that he was betrayed, told the disciples, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. You can count on it. You can count on it. I love what Peter said. This is a verse that's always meant a lot to me. As he's closing out his first letter, he says, May the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. Have you suffered for the gospel? That's the question. I thought I had until I reread the book of Acts here. But there are different levels of suffering, to be sure. And we've talked previously, um, I think when we went through our series on Hebrews, about, you know, why bad things happen to good people. And sometimes life just throws you a curve. We live in a fallen world. Bad things happen to good people. That's not, that's not the kind of suffering I'm talking about here. I'm talking about actually suffering for the gospel. That because we believe that 
God, the eternal creator of the universe, revealed himself to us in his word, that the Bible is the only standard for our beliefs, attitudes, and practices, and that what matters most is what God says, not what the government says, not what anybody else says, but what the Bible says, has that led to suffering uh, in your life? And so I'd like to close out by way of a takeaway. You know, I always try to leave you with something to sort of really chew on for the coming week. Uh, with a time of prayer, uh, and what I'm going to do is going to suggest seven things that came to my heart uh, that I think we need to pray for. You know, the, the suffering, persecuted church across the world needs our prayers. I mean, imagine what it would be like to be sitting in a lonely prison cell as a preacher because you were preaching the gospel, facing beatings and stuff every day, and, and wondering... Does anybody know I'm here? Is anybody, are my brothers and sisters in Christ praying for me? Well, we confess we don't do that enough. So we want to do that today, right now, and I want to encourage you to pray for these things as well. So I'm going to put seven things that we need to pray for, and then we're going to ask uh, someone to pray for them. So in a moment, Gary's going to pray uh, for this first one, but we really need to pray broadly speaking, for all Christians around the world who have been imprisoned for their faith. And as we go through these seven things, maybe one of them will resonate more with you. Uh, jot it down and pray for that this week. But right now I'm going to ask Gary to stand, and would you pray for Christians around the world that are in prison? Gary. So we're trying, for those of you watching on live stream or watching this video later, we're trying to use the mic here to hopefully pick it up on the recording. So those of you that do pray, voice a prayer for me, uh, would you hold the mic really close to your uh, mouth and just let's really try to, uh, to pick it up. The second thing I want us to pray for is for God's protection of pastors who are sharing the gospel in hostile regions. You know, maybe they've not been imprisoned yet, but they're having to be very, very careful. And, uh, you know, they can't just email things out and give reports and, and talk on social media about all that they're doing the way we can here in America. You know, they can't announce, hey, come next Wednesday to a midweek Bible study, <laughs> right? So we want to pray for God's protection so that they can continue to proclaim the gospel. And I've asked Nat if he would voice this prayer for us today. I'm going to start off with Ephesians. <clears throat> with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the good news for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may speak it boldly as I ought to speak. Father, we thank you for the words that you recorded here through Paul, because as fathers were sitting here in comfy seats and in a nice building, and having come from shelters where we have beds to sleep in and plenty to eat for before we came here. Father, we have no fear of being spied on or persecuted right here in this room. But, Father, there are those who are. And, Father, we thank you for those whom you have redeemed through your Son's blood and the good news that has transformed their lives, that they have a heart to reach out to those like themselves, like Paul, Father, like Brother Lee, those we read about in the persecuted church who are ministering 
to your people and spreading the good news. And maybe wondering at times, just like we read in your word, to pray that we, for our governments that we may have a quiet and peaceful, peaceable life. And for some reason there are those who see it as their ambition to um, squelch that, to, to lash out at those who have life in Christ, who, as we mentioned earlier, have walked by faith and not by sight. And Father, our, our tendency is to sometimes lash back, sometimes think of our persecutors as that flesh and blood which is persecuting us, but Paul tells us that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against it's a spiritual warfare, and they are just instruments. So Father, I pray that you, for those who are in Christ, who are your pastors, and Father, remembering that they are being prayed for because you are watching over them. And Christ said, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. And if they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours. And there's a promise there that um, you do have those who will hear the good news and will turn to you, just like the jailer in Philippi. So Father, we pray for these. And Father, I pray that you'd help us to be your instruments of spreading the good news so that we may not end up in, in the situation that any of our brothers and sisters are in. Because you are working in us, spreading your good news here. So Father, we commit these things to you in Christ. Amen. The third thing I, I want us to really... Uh, pray for is to comfort, and I don't know if you've ever really thought about this, but to comfort those Christians whose family members have been killed for the cause of Christ. You know, you hear or you read about someone who was martyred, do we think about those left behind? Often they'll, they'll drag mom or dad out right in front of the kids and kill them right in the front yard. Let's pray for God to comfort, the God of all comfort, to comfort those uh, Christians whose family members have been killed for Christ. I'm going to ask Judy if she would lift this prayer up. Heavenly Father, um, I can't even imagine. Lord, for those families that have been injured and afflicted mm -hmm. emotionally, mentally, perhaps physically, God forbid, spiritually, from seeing a loved one of theirs murdered for the name of Jesus. Father, be with them. Give them greater faith, greater boldness, greater commitment to stand for you, Lord, just as their loved one did and gave the ultimate sacrifice. Father, I pray that no one hearing this would be affected in this way, but yet we know that they are. So, Lord, we pray for those families who have lost children, spouses, parents, relatives, friends, because those people were willing to speak your name. May we never cower, and may we be bold, and may those families stand bold for you, Jesus. In this precious name we pray, amen. Amen. And now I'd like to ask us to pray for uh, that government leaders in these hostile nations would turn their hearts to the Lord and be saved. You know, it, it doesn't take much. You know, it can, can make a huge difference if just one key official in a key position of leadership can come to faith and then maybe release a prisoner or give orders not to go arrest prisoners and so forth. So I've asked Brent if he would uh, lift this prayer up for us before the Lord. And Lord, we do pray for those that are in leadership in these countries, for them to have tender hearts. We thank you that the folks that you bring 
and raise into leadership positions and to, that are the leaders, God. They're there for your purpose. And Lord, they can poison and they can attack and they can influence. But God, your power is more powerful than them. And power comes from you, God, and you are all-powerful. And so we pray for them to have tender hearts and I pray for believers to surround them, to be bold, and to share, and to influence them, and to uh, give them example of the power of Jesus Christ in their lives. And we pray that these government leaders would come to you and would be a demonstration of the power that you have to change. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. And I think most of you here at Plum Creek know that Fred has been very instrumental in helping to get Bibles to a region of Peru where people are pastors that can then have access to good study Bibles and then preach the gospel to others. So I think it's appropriate that we ask Fred to pray for the safe delivery of Bibles and gospel materials to those in hostile regions. Well, I want to thank you for, for supplying Bibles in countries and in languages that we don't know. Think about it, everyone. No. And whenever a believer comes to faith, uh, that you supply the Word of God, that he may grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I ask for uh, protection and blessing and guidance as I travel to Peru in September. Uh, bless Pastor Augusto as he arranges the conferences both in Ventania and in Peru. <clears throat> Father, uh, protect uh, protect everybody in that administration that's organizing it. And I ask for blessings on those pastors who receive this study Bible that they may go out and multiply your work and with hundreds and hundreds. We have sent over a thousand study Bibles to the pastors there over the last 12 years. God, thank you for all that you've done. I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. And this next one's kind of hard to pray for but I believe it's something we should pray for, and that is for those that are being persecuted or imprisoned, that they'll have the strength to actually share the gospel with those that are persecuting them. I mean, Paul did that. And, uh, and so let's, uh, let's pray for that. I've asked Ken if he would ask, uh, voice this prayer for us before the Lord. Our gracious Father, there's many things we come before you and ask for. Some of them are trivial, Lord. Some of them are important, God. But the fact that we in this country and Christians across the world are being persecuted, Lord, is something that you tell us that is coming our way if we haven't experienced it. And if we have experienced it, that there's evil there because we've seen it up close and personal. And Lord, I would ask that you would grant each of us the strength to look past the persecution to the person or persons that are persecuting each of us, each country, an individual, and give us the strength to share the gospel with them, Lord, because that is life-changing. That is the most important thing that they can hear in their entire lives. It's the gospel message of the good news. Lord, give us the strength to share that, not only in our walk around us, but for those that we come in contact with that we don't even know, that we would all open our hearts up and have the strength to share the gospel as we're being persecuted. Lord, we would pray these things in Jesus, your son's name, that he would lift them to you, Lord. Amen. Amen. You know, as I was listening to you pray, one of the things that popped into my mind, the best definition of forgiveness that I've ever heard, and I've always remembered and repeated it many, many times through the years, and, and it comes to mind as we're asking for someone who's being persecuted and beaten and imprisoned to be able to actually 
share the gospel with the one persecuting them. The best definition of forgiveness is forgiveness sees the needs of the offender more than the wounds of the offense. It sees the needs of the offender more than the wounds of the offense. And then finally, and we'll close with this, I've asked uh, Greg if he would just pray for all believers in our own country that we might be prepared and stand firm in the face of growing persecution. Father, um, as I've been thinking about this topic, I, I, I think of how richly you have blessed this nation for many centuries. We have had unprecedented freedoms. We've had laws and authorities protecting free speech, protecting freedom of religion, where we could say things and not fear jail, not fear persecution. That's a great blessing. But Lord, it, it certainly has led to apathy, lethargicness. These freedoms, these protections have been eroding, and dramatically so over the past handful of years. The church in the U.S. has certainly read in Scripture about the persecution. We've read the Fox's Book of Martyrs and, and great men and women of faith who've been persecuted. Over the, the years, we've prayed for our brothers and sisters in Christ and other nations being persecuted. But Father, it's coming here. And, in, and part of it is because you love us. When I think of James talking about when trials come our way, <clears throat> we shouldn't be surprised. We, we, we shouldn't be fearful. We should count it joy. Lord, I pray for all of us. I pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ that when it comes, not if, but when it comes, that we would cling to you and the hope that you have put within us. So God, give us strength, not against flesh and blood and those that come against us, but give us the strength to believe the gospel and believe it to be true. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Well, let's stand together as we close. I'm going to ask the worship team to lead us in a closing song. And I want you to just think about this throughout the coming week. Are you prepared to suffer? That's the question.